0: Revelation chapter 3, we look at verses 7 through 13, and we're looking uh, at the church of Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia, and then next week is the final church, the church of Laodicea, and then we would have completed all seven messages to the seven churches, uh, and finally make it to chapter 4. But tonight, uh, this is just a tremendous message for us as we are encouraged by what Jesus says to all these churches Uh, As we've already mentioned, every one of these churches that existed 2,000 years ago, the message was for them, the message was explicit for them, and it encouraged them in in what they were going through, but it's also, in the sovereignty of God, a message that is timeless. It's a message for all ages, and the church of all ages, and therefore a message that's applicable to us tonight. So let's notice verse 7. As Jesus begins his familiar entry into his message to the church he says and to the church I'm sorry and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens so we've already noticed that in each message to the churches they begin by describing an attribute of Christ uh, each church has received that kind of a message, and it begins with Jesus explaining who he is and the way he already introduced himself in chapter 1, giving some kind of attribute. And the reason, again, I want to remind us, why is that? Well, this is because Christ himself is to be the great reality that shapes our thinking. Christ is to be the great reality that shapes our thinking, not our suffering or persecution or the false teachers that we may deal with or the apathetic christians that we live with or a declining culture and its values that doesn't shape or should not shape our worldview or our thinking we should be focused and gazing upon the beauty of christ and he therefore shapes our thinking in the midst of all this stuff And again, I I think that's why he opens each letter to each church that's going through these different things by saying, look at me, (laughs) look at me. And that's why we gather week after week after week, right? That's why God instituted his church and, and ordained the idea of preaching his word and lifting his word up among the people. Why? So that we can every week, every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time we come together, gently take our faces in our palm of our hand and kind of move our gaze, each of us say, look to Jesus. Don't worry about that and this problem and this pain and this suffering. Let's look at the glory and the beauty of Christ. And so so let's do that as we continue now to to look at this. What, What is he saying here? This idea of the one who holds the key. I mean, we understand the Holy One, the one separated beyond all people. There is none like him. He is perfect. He's the Holy One. And he's also true. We know that he's the true one. All truth resides in him. But what is this key of David? He has the key of, of David. Now, the, the key, it's very interesting. If we go back to Revelation 1.18, that first initial description of Christ, he says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So there we see this other statement of Christ having keys, and these keys are of death and of Hades. Now keys symbolize authority. Keys symbolize the authority to open and shut, right? To bind and release. They have the, they're the authority. If I have the keys, I, can, I have access. And so obviously verses, verse 18 of Revelation 1 is reminding us that Christ is sovereign over death. He has the authority Over death and hell. So now what is this key of David talking about in chapter 3? The key of David. Obviously, it's the authority of something, it's the authority over something. Well, basically, Jesus has the key to the very household of God. David and his house represents God's kingdom. David's house and David's throne represents the rule of God, right? It's a picture of that in the Old Testament, that Christ would be the f- fulfillment of David, and then God's kingdom is that fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, which the Davidic kingdom was a picture of God's rule in this earth. So what Revelation reminds us is that Christ has the key of the kingdom, the authority of god's house literally and i love this language because it takes us back to isaiah chapter 22 isaiah chapter 22 now this this refers to an unfaithful steward named sheba who was replaced by eliakim a faithful servant so let's talk about what was going on back in isaiah 22 and how this relates directly with revelation uh, chapter 3 so let's go back now isaiah 22 he is, he's replacing this unfaithful servant Sheba with a faithful servant. Verse 20, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. By the way, all that language is exactly what Jesus was described as, wearing a robe and a sash with the name Lord of Lords and King of Kings. All of that is priestly uh, speech, reminding us that Jesus is the high priest, the great high priest, and the King of Kings, the one with all authority. But here's this servant back in the Old Testament, Eliakim. He's clothed like that. But look what else it says. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And look at this. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David the key of David. This this mentioned way back in Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 20 through 22. And it's talking about Eliakim receiving the key of David. What does that give him the authority to do? He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Same language. So obviously it's referring whatever revelation is talking about. Isaiah is also a foreshadow of so Eliakim here is a foreshadow of Christ in some way. Now, this faithful servant, Eliakim, had control or access to the king's house. That's what that set of keys, they were put upon his shoulders. That's just like the speech in Isaiah where it says about Christ, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He, the authority will rest on him. So these keys on the shoulder, they show again that that authority rests on Eliakim. He's got the authority, the control to access the king's house. And he was in charge of dispersing and dispensing of the king's resources. All of that was given to this man, Eliakim. So that's the foreshadow, right? That's the type. This is an earthly servant who's fulfilling this role in the king's house. He's got the authority of the king's house. He's got the key to the king's house. He's got the, king, the keys to the king's storehouse. And he's the steward who not only opens and gives access to the king and his house, but he also opens the door to the storehouse and gives provision to the people. What a beautiful foreshadow type of Jesus Christ. And that's what Revelation shows us. To him, he says, Jesus says, I am the one who holds the key of David. And it's the fulfillment of that key of David mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not just the key to an earthly king's house and a a little trivial earthly storehouse. I hold the keys to the king of king's house, the very access to God himself and the very access to all of his riches and grace. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's reminding us. I I am the one who controls access, to the house of God. What a message for our world today, right? This is why we preach the gospel. We want everybody to know that there's one who has access to God, and it's Jesus Christ. There's no other way. That's what Jesus said in John 10, 9. I am the door. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? Every analogy, every type, every shadow in the Bible finds its fulfillment in Christ. Somebody says, I get confused. Is he the door? Is he the key? Is he is he the 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 shepherd? Is he yes? Yes to all of them. He is the fulfillment of all of them. Not only is he the key to the door, he's the door. (laughs) I am the, the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He'll go in and out and find fulfillment and find sustenance. John 14:6 what did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." There is no access to God, the door is barred unless I open the door and let you in. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Revelation is reminding us that we serve the one who has access to god himself to his temple that's important this is the picture of the temple that we're going to see this temple language in the rest of this chapter of revelation i hold the keys to the very temple of god whereby you have access to come and worship him through me it's beautiful and since it is christ who holds the key to salvation Since it's Christ who holds the very access to God and Christ who holds the very access to the storehouse of his riches, the church must therefore rely on Christ to grant success in ministry. We must rely on Christ and him alone to grant success. He's got the key. (laughs) He has the authority. He has the access. We don't. And it's so crazy for me to think of how many times I've tried ministry in my young, restless days, thinking of great ideas to do ministry apart from going to the one who has the keys and begging him, open the door, right? And we do it in our own lives. But notice verse eight. He tells this church, I know your works. I know your works. By the way, this this is the other church besides Smyrna that doesn't receive any condemnation. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have, set a, I, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, that's amazing. What a message to this small church of Philadelphia. What, 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 how this must have been taken by them. The encouragement this must give to hear that the one with all authority, the one with the keys to open or shut a door, tells them, hey, I know your works. And guess what? I've opened a door for you, and nobody's going to shut it. Wow. This is glorious. Christ's door of opportunity is what we're talking about here. Paul understood this. That's what this means. The idea of Christ opening and shutting doors is this picture of opportunity, not just of salvation. It is a picture of salvation. That the only way to enter, we already talked about that. The only access we have to God is through Christ. We understand that. But in a ministry sense, the idea of Jesus opening and closing doors is directly connected to success or lack of success, humanly speaking, of ministry. The only success we're ever going to have as a church in a neighborhood is if Christ opens a door for us. And that's what he's promised the church here. Paul understood this. Colossians 4.3, this is the same language he used about doors. Colossians 4.3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. Isn't this glorious, by the way, of Paul when he would write? And many times Paul is suffering or he's just been persecuted or kicked out of a town or possibly writing from prison. Every time he has the, the same theme. And he says, at the same time, pray also for us. What's your prayer request, Paul, that you have healing or strength or more money? or re- No, no, no that God may open to us a door for the word. You see that heart? This, this This should be the heart of all of us. This is why we exist, folks. Our prayer as a church should constantly be, Lord, open a door for your word to flow out of us. That's why we're here, Lord. He said, that the, door may, that the Lord may open a, a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So here's the exact case that Paul that I'm talking about. Paul's in prison here. And he's not saying, oh, pray that the prison food gets better. He's not saying, pray that they bring me a warm blanket. No, his heart still suffering in prison is pray that God continues to open a door here for the word. To be proclaimed in the excellent mystery of Christ to be made known. That's why I'm here, he said. That's why I've been arrested. Don't let that go to waste. <laughs> Don't let my suffering and my persecution go to waste, but pray that God opens a door whereby I can proclaim Christ. And he's so concerned. He's, he's so detailed in this pray, prayer. He says that I may make it clear, which is how I, how I ought to speak, So he's saying, pray that that I'm articulate with the gospel, that I'm clear with the gospel. That's how I should speak. Don't let me be afraid. Don't let me me try to to be winsome. Don't let me try to win favor with somebody for a favor. No, let me just be clear, boldly with the gospel. That's how I should speak. That's how I want you to pray that God opens that door. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, Paul prayed the same way when he said this but i will stay in ephesus until pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries and, and this is this is something i want us to grab this it, the things that we look at as afterthoughts a few extra words tacked on to the end of our verse they are essential truths of the christian life every time an effectual door is opened, it doesn't mean the absence of adversaries As a matter of fact, adversaries are always there. (laughs) The enemy is always fighting. Your flesh is always cringing. But the doors that Christ opens are available for us to walk through boldly in the midst of our cringing and our fear and the adversary's persecutions and, and the trials that try us. And that's what Paul's saying. We've got to be open to the fact that it's Christ who opens up doors of opportunity. It's his ministry. He is going to save the people he's going to save and he's going to use us. He's going to open the door at just the right time for you to say just the right, right word. And you say, wow, what if I don't see them come to know Christ that moment? No, that's not the point. It's not that we go out and we witness for Christ and we don't say, Lord, give me many people to say the prayer today. Let many people s- say that they Accept you as their Savior today. No. Father, open a door that I may speak your word, your truth. Whether or not they trust the Lord that moment or after the next 50 doors have been opened in their life. What I'm saying is God uses each of us to speak a word of truth to somebody and then he may use somebody else to come along and reaffirm that and then somebody else to come along and also reaffirm that and finally God will save them in his process, in his time. We just got to be faithful to walk through every little door that God opens up and as Paul prayed, let us speak clearly. Let us just speak clearly the word of God. Take that, uh, that, that opportunity. Whether they look at us like we're crazy or whether we barely get it out or even if we seem so silly and they come back with some rebuttal that makes us feel like a fool. By the way, a little bit of a, of a what do you want to call it, a spoiler alert. We are all counted as fools for Christ's sake, Paul said, right? We're, all, we're a fool all the day long for Christ's sake. So get over that. Of course you're going to look like a fool when you witness for Christ in a world that hates him. But that doesn't matter because that word is powerful. No matter how they make fun and how they chide and make make light of what you said, the power of God is this. When you're gone and they go home and they turn off the lights and they snuggle into bed, guess what? The word is in there and the Holy Spirit begins to work. They can't get away from that. That's where our faith is. Christ opens the doors and shuts them. It's him. John Stott puts it like this. Well, by the way, let me before I read that, I think it's important that we understand that history shows that Christ's promise to the Church of Philadelphia came to pass. He promised them. He said, "I'm going to open a door for you, and nobody's going to shut it. You're going to be, you're going to be successful in my ministry, because I opened the door." No now, now men may try to shut it, others may try to squelch it. But it won't happen because I opened that door. Do <laughs> you see that hope? We are all, as Christians, guaranteed some success. Why? Because Christ cannot fail, and it's His work. And I think it's really neat when we when we look at those those that that, that verse there, and then realize that history shows us that, that that promise did come true right there, using that church in Philadelphia, under under. Pax Romana, we all know Pax Romana, right? The Roman, the great Roman peace that kind of ruled for about 200 years all around Asia and Europe. Pax Romana, this is a sovereign God who can use what he wants. It's no accident that Christ came into history when he came into history. No accident that he was crucified when he was crucified. It's no accident that the apostles he called were the apostles he called. It's no accident that a little bitty church And Philadelphia was founded. And it's no accident that they began to propagate the gospel. And it was during this Pax Romana. Think about it. A well-ordered government, good roads, safe travel, a common official language. It allowed the gospel message to spread far into Spain and Asia from this location. In addition to this... The influence of the ancient pagan gods. Think about this. The the great influence that the ancient pagan gods had had held over the people for, for generations was declining now. And people were searching for something of more substance. Just during that time of history, the gospel explodes on the scene. And the way is made straight for faithful churches like Philadelphia to walk through the door that God's opening. And to take that message all over the known world at that time. John Stott says this: "Wherever they went, Christian evangelists found groping minds and hungry hearts. That's God. Thats God God sets up entire cultures to be ready for the gospel. See again, we think we're going to we think we're going <laughs> we to help him out with little gimmicks, fog machines, light shows and, and, and bounty houses we think that somehow that's going to make the difference. No, we, he called us, be faithful to just preach Christ. I will open the doors. I'll make everything else effectual. I'll even set a whole culture up to be groping for truth. I mean, think about that. God had prepared this entire ancient world for the arrival of Of the gospel. God opens these doors of opportunity throughout history. And a modern example of that is China. I mean, think about China. For years, many had been left disenchanted by the false lies of communism, the empty promises, and the the communist ideology never fulfilled. And what has this done? This left a worldview vacuum in China, and it has been filled with the gospel. Churches are growing like wildfire underground, yes, but nonetheless, hungry hearts, people groping in the darkness for something that really brings peace and and hope. And the gospel explodes on the scene through faithful little groups of people who see a door open, no matter how small, and they walk through with the gospel. And God gives the increase, it's glorious. That's what he is reminding this little church in Philadelphia, and he's reminding this little church in Bridgetown the same thing. I'm opening doors, be faithful. Now, look at this. Look at verse 8. Continues to to let them know I know that it's not you, your power is small, it's me. Look at this, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set a door before you that no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You're a small church. And, and this church in Philadelphia was small. It was a small town. It was, it was a small church. Not a lot of wealth. Uh, uh, Richard Phillips kind of explains them. I, I like what he says here. He says it's not hard to imagine ways in which the church of Philadelphia was weak to the, the people, uh, the, the people that may have come came from lower economic and social classes they probably did not have great material resources and their numbers may have been small but their spiritual attainments contained a great power as they preached and obeyed the bible and continued their witness to christ so again you're not powerful you're not wealthy you don't have a big church building you don't have don't have a lot of people you have no political sway with the government and yet you're faithful to my word and you do not deny my name and that's all I need. And that's all I'm asking you. That's what Christ said. That's all. I open the door. I give the power. I bring the people in. Right? I mean, I mean that's it. That's, that's what he's saying. Douglas Kelly goes on to build on that for us today. Listen, here's an application of that for us today. When we contemplate the aggressive secularism of modern America and Western Europe with s- uh, s- systematic unbelief in high places, such as the universities and the media, add to that the entrenched modernism of the educational system, system and the precipitous moral decline in, one Christian, uh, in, in one-time Christian populations, it is true that over against them our strength is small. But Jesus says that we are not anxiously to worry about it. You have little strength. Use what little you have. And I am going to supernaturally multiply it by opening the doors. So, again, that's just a reminder for us. We're no match for the culture. Folks, we cannot, in our little might, put Disney out of business. We can try. We can say, okay, I'm going to boycott everything in this world that seems to go against God. I'm going to make a, you know, an effort to change all those things. Man, there's some, there's some big dogs in the fight, folks, right? Satan and his minions, the principalities and powers and dominions of this earth, they are strong. We in, our, in ourselves are weak. We in ourselves are no match. We never were meant to be the match. Christ called us to be faithful to him and allow him to be the conqueror. He is the conqueror, he will open the doors. He will will use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things of this world to confound and destroy the strong. It's him. But we got to be faithful in our small towns, in our small lives, in our small little villages, in 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 our homes, and trust him for the rest. And this is the promises that we see in Revelation, this encouragement to the church. Now, Notice verse 9 as he continues to talk about this kind of a juxtaposition against the forces that they're dealing with. And one of the things he mentions here is this idea of the synagogue of Satan. And look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And another statement Another statement that we could term in human terms is an an underdog statement, right? Here are these groups who are powerful in this synagogue of Satan, and they lie, and they deceive, and they say they're Christians, basically, but they're not. And they're actually fighting you with all of the force that they have as as an organized religious body. And yet I will make them come and bow down before you. Wow. Pretty crazy statement. Now, the synagogue of Satan, who are they? Well, basically, it says that they say they are Jews and are not. That's that's one giveaway of who these people are. They claim to be Jews, but are not. By this, Jesus does not deny their ethnicity, but rather he denies their covenant status as true Israel. Okay? So I'm going to explain what that means. When God gave the covenant with Abraham, he promised him, I am making a covenant with you. Through the nation of Israel, all nations of the world will be blessed. Again, what was that ultimate promise? How will all nations be blessed through the nation of Israel? Because through the nation of Israel will come Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who once and for all will put away sin, destroy Satan, destroy death. Become that doorway, the one doorway between sinful man and a holy God, giving us access to him. That's hell. That's and how does one walk through the door? How does one walk through that, that door, who is Christ, and become a true Israelite? By faith. We said that Sunday. If you weren't here Sunday, watch it. I don't have time right now to get into it. But we're saved by faith. By faith. Abraham, believe that promise. When God said, through you, I'm going to, to, to bless all the nations. You know what Abraham did? He exercised faith. He believed God. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he believed him by faith. And Paul tells us in Romans that by faith, that faith that Abraham had that day, that that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so the same is true for us, for all people. It's by faith that one is a true Israelite. So what I'm saying is the Israelites mentioned in the old testament are really all believers throughout all ages the church today what we would call the church is the fulfillment of israel the the promises made to israel is fulfilled today in what we call the church made up of both jew and gentile anyone who by faith believes the promises of god are brought into his family and are now made spiritual israelites But these people say they're Jews, but they're not. Simply meaning they do not believe on Christ. This is who Jesus talked about in John 8, 37 and 38. Let's look at that real quick. Jesus said there to the Pharisees, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. That's what they bragged a lot about, by the way. We're we're offspring of Abraham. Abraham was our forefather. Look at us. We're special. Many people today will say I was born in a Christian home I'm a Christian hmm but that's what they were saying right we're offspring of David and Jesus says I know that you're offspring of David yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father what a bold statement to make a separation between these Israelites speak to these Pharisees who say we are of God, but Jesus says, no, I am of God. (laughs) You're of your father. Isn't that amazing? He says, then you do what you have heard from your father. Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus said, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So again, this is exactly what Revelation is referring to when somebody, when he's saying that, well, they're saying they're Jews, but they're not. They're other followers of the devil. They, they are faithless. They're not following Christ. They're actually now persecuting those who are following Christ. But notice, we have the hope. Rest of verse 9, let's read it again. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. What's going to happen? look what he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, there's a couple of interpretations here for this. There's one that would go all the way back to the fact that at one point, the Jewish nation will realize, wow, the grace of God has come to the Gentiles. It happened in the New Testament when when Paul began to preach the Gentiles, and the Jewish believers were shocked and said, wow, the Gentiles have come to faith just like we have. What do you know? God saves Gentiles by grace, just like he saves Jews who trust him by grace. Yes. But I think even on a more direct measure, this speaks of God opening this door and doing a work in the life of people that we never dreamed he could do a work in. I mean, I think if we look at this, we can say Jesus assures this church that because he opens doors of salvation to whom he will open those doors of salvation. And that's what we have to understand, right? He opens the door of salvation to whom he will. And through this church's bold witness, but through their, their, their bold gospel witness, some of its most violent persecutors persecutors will ultimately come and be saved and bow down at the very feet of Christ. That, that happens all the time, folks. We, again, we can't dismiss the fact that salvation is of the Lord, Faithfulness is our responsibility, but salvation is his responsibility. And the most arduant and angry protesters are are, our greatest enemies, the people who, if we're honest, we just wish would die and go to hell, if we're honest. We're all sinners, folks. There are people that have been so blasphemous to God in in my past. I I have been street preaching at times, never been in Tennessee, college student, preaching at this crazy park that was known as, as, as basically Sodom and Gomorrah of the day. And this person just blatantly blaspheming, blaspheming, and just begging God to strike them dead if he's real. Strike me dead right now. And blah, 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 blah. Man, I was just praying, Lord, strike him dead. <laughs> I was just waiting for there to be a little spot smoldering in this sidewalk in my flesh. But you know, again, folks, the, the point of what Revelation is saying, there's even something better than vengeance. It's grace and mercy. And when that sovereign God takes the very message that some enemy of ours is scoffing at, and yet one day we see Christ open the door of their heart and they bow before him and worship him as Lord, there's nothing greater, no greater victory. But that's Christ who opens those doors, and he will. He can. It, again, it's up to him. Now, again, on the flip side, we can't be angry and say, Lord, you didn't save this person I talked to. And then we have to humbly give him our allegiance, whether or not he saves who we talked to that very day or not. We have to trust, though, that he holds the ultimate key of authority, and he opens the door, and he shuts the door. But He's sovereign. What are we called to be faithful? And there are times when He promises, "I will take those enemies, and I will call." Because, by the way, remember, don't forget. <laughs> here it is: all of us. Well, that's not like Joe Biden. All of us, all of us, were His enemies. That's the bottom line. All of us were His enemies. So it's a ma- it's a matter of grace all across the board. None of us are here except for the fact that he opened the door. (laughs) And that's what we have to be faithful to preach. But look what he goes on to say here. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is an interesting verse here. Jesus reminds them of the truth of every Christian. What is that? Those who persevere or endure to the end shall be saved. How do we know who's a Christian? A Christian will endure to the end. Oh, but here's the glorious twin doctrine there. We will persevere to the end because God preserves us by his grace. That's the glory of that. But he's reminding them, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, you've patiently endured You stay faithful. I will keep you from the hour hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some would interpret, our our dispensational brothers and sisters interpret this to mean the secret rapture that comes and takes us all out before any tribulation comes so that we don't have to go through any tribulation. And I, I take it to mean it's not that the church would be removed from tribulation to come, but that it would be kept safe and, in and through the, any tribulation that would come. And that's what we've seen through history, and I believe that's what we're seeing in this, this text. The church throughout history has been called upon to faithfully preach Christ in a world under God's judgment. Do you hear that? We, we are called to faithfully continue to preach God's grace and the gospel to a world that is currently under God's judgment and wrath. And that's our nation now. A historical truth makes Christ's promise to this church all the more remarkable when you think about it, right? I mean, just very quickly, we're going to end right here soon. But I mean, think about this church here in Philadelphia, back to the 2,000 years ago. Christ is telling that church, be faithful. And you've been enduring. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep you through the trials that come. And, and it's really interesting. History shows that all of those seven churches, by the way, that we've talked about, all of those seven churches ceased to exist, except one, Philadelphia. And here's how I mean that. Philadelphia survived repeated attacks throughout the centuries until it fell to Muslim Turks in 1337. Far outlasting, even at that date, all the other churches of of Asia that were written to by, by that message. However, Christian churches continue to exist. And in modern Turkey today... In the city of Al Sahir, there, there remain Christian churches that are a direct descendant from the church of Philadelphia. Believers from that church continue to live, continue to preach the gospel. So even though that local area, that, that physical structure was destroyed, there's still the remnant and remains of that faithful witness of Philadelphia. Why? Because God's promises are true. And I think we should take, you know, take that and, and realize, man, we may, and, and churches will come and go, right? Christians will die. We understand that individually. But overall, Christ's promise will stand. He said the gates, he said, I will build my church, <laughs> and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. And, and that promise is ironclad. It will never fade away. So look at verses 11 through 13 as we close this is our promise again this is what he's telling the church there and he's telling the church here basically he's saying i'm going to make you a pillar in god's house all of you who believe on me all of you who are faithfully standing against your own fleshly temptations against the world's temptations against persecution all you who continue to endure by my grace and my name i will make you a pillar in god's house look what he says verse 11 through 13 I am coming soon. There's our hope again, right? To a church beleaguered and battered and hurting all of us, right? Each of us as individuals and as the church can take heart with this when Jesus says, I'm coming, I'm coming. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. In the temple of my God. So we understand this language. The one who conquers is Christ, not us. He conquers for us. No one will take our crowns, but he's using this language from a human standpoint to encourage us to be faithful. Yes, even to put the fear of God in us, so to speak. Stay faithful. Don't lose your crown. Don't do it. Don't take a chance. Humanly speaking, there's verses in the Bible that should scare us to say, I don't want to lose my faith i don't want to give up i don't want to hurt christ i don't want to sin against him and that's that's the encouraging part but on the flip side all that language is also meant to reinforce the fact that our conquering and our enduring comes from christ the one who opened the door in the first place for us and we'll make sure that we walk through and enter into this temple he's promised so look at this he says this to every church he says, the one who conquers i will Give life, And in this case, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. There's our security in Christ. Who made us the the pillar in the temple? Did we do it? Did we build ourselves up so strong and put the mortar on ourselves and build ourselves up and make ourselves? No, he said, I will make you a pillar in the house of God. Never shall you go out of it and i will write on him the name of my god and the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down from my god out of heaven and my own new name so we've talked about this already that new name that only christ and we know that that intimacy that name that he's given the name of king of kings and lord of lords the name that we see later in revelation across his chest that says king of kings we know that name because he has revealed it to us and you know what this idea of i will put my name the name of my god on him that's a seal we are sealed by his grace we're, we're we are his workmanship and when you make something you craft something you make something sometimes there's a seal that you put on there a mark a maker's mark, if you will. And just to use bourbon, by the way, which, uh, again, this is kind of a, a little crazy here, a little risque, but uh, the story of maker's mark, the wife of the, the husband who started making that bourbon, she was very much into European art and design. She collects silver, very meticulous silver that was made in Europe. And those craftsmen, when they would make that wonderful piece of art out of, out of silver and, 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 and pewter and different things, they would put a mark, they would stamp a mark The maker's mark, it was called. Showing, hey, this is my work. This is my identification. My, you know, the the famous artist, whoever he was, put his name on that. The mark. This is mine. Well, that's what Christ does for all of us. We are his workmanship, and he puts his mark. He puts the very name of God on us. Because that's who made us. Not we ourselves, but God made us. Both physically and spiritually alive. But look what he goes on here. I love this, this language. Let's grab this. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Mm. Now that doesn't sound maybe so great to some. A a pillar? (laughs) A a pillar in a building? A pillar in the presence of God. One that doesn't move away from God is what that means. Steadfast, placed, planted, in the presence of God that's what it means and not going to move and that was David's goal in prayer was it not he loved God he was a man for God's own heart and he longed to be with him what is the many verses David would pin he would say I like a deer pants for the water so my soul thirsts for you O God Christians we should long to be in the presence of God In one way, the church is a foreshadow of that. We should long to be in the house of God, the temple of God, as we come together and make up that temple, right? We should long to be those pillars in the temple of God, in his presence, faithful. But David said that, right? Psalm 27, verse four, did he say? One thing I ask from the Lord. One thing I ask, David said. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see that? What did Psalm 23 say? Five and six. We'll close with this. The same thing. He, 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 he tells the Lord, and we, we, we say this same prayer to the Lord in a sense. We echo this truth. You Lord, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what Revelation is all about, folks. Revelation is all about the fact that Jesus is showing he fulfills the promise made to David all the way back in the Old Testament when he says, I prepare a table before you in the very presence of your enemies. Let them persecute you. Let them martyr you. Let them destroy your churches and, and arrest you. That's okay. I still prepare a table right in their presence. In the very midst of persecution, you are being fed by me. You're being sustained by me. It's glorious. But he goes on. Not only do I sustain you through the pain of this life, but look, you prepare, David said, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now look at this. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And what's the culmination? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what Jesus said in Revelation. I will make you a pillar in the temple of God, and you shall not be moved. There's our hope, folks. Let's continue to be bold. Let's continue to lovingly go out and tell people about Christ knowing that we are forever marked by the maker's mark our savior nothing can change that let's pray father god we thank you for your word we thank you for the truth of who christ is that he opens and no man shuts so father let us rest in his promises to us let us be a church locally right here that love each other ferociously that pray for each other tenaciously and that are bold to leave these walls and to go out into a hostile world and realize you've prepared a table before us, that you've opened doors for us. And all we have to do is be faithful to, as Paul said, speak clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you'll do the rest. We rest in that truth, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.